Last Sunday, we began a message entitled, Four Reasons You Were Made a Minister. As we noted then, we were looking at four reasons Paul said he was made a minister in verse 25, where he says, Whereof I am made a minister, but he uses the word diakonos, which is translated minister or serve, and that word is applied to you and I throughout Scripture. We are servants of the Most High God. We are deacons of the Most High God, and we serve one another. And so that same word is applied to us. While Paul serves in an official capacity with apostolic authority and inspiration, we serve in a different capacity, one another. But we're drawing out of Paul's ministry and why he was made a ministry, and we're seeing connections in the text and in the Bible where we can show that God has called us into His light so that we may be part of ministry, which just means to serve one another. First, we looked at the first reason was found in verse 24, where Paul says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. He was made a minister, verse 25, whereof, for that reason, to fill up that which was lacking. And we looked at what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ, which was nothing meritorious, nothing of redempted value, but something that he was not personally here to display anymore, for which we as Christians can display that in our sufferings as we rejoice and love one another. Secondly, Paul was made a minister according to the dispensation of God that was given to him to you or for Gentiles, and he unpacks the mystery as the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is Christ in Gentiles, the hope of glory. And he was saying in those passages, he came to fulfill the word of God. He came to complete the mystery by speaking it and using his stewardship in ministry to speak this mystery. Christ in all of us. Gentiles and Jews as believers. Then we looked at our own stewardship with the gifts we've given that Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As you have received the gift, even so minister the same as good stewards of God's manifold grace. So we all have a stewardship, a ministry of stewardship, whereby the ascended Christ has given each believer gifts or a gift where we're to take those gifts and diakonos, diakoneo, minister or serve the same as a good steward of God's multicolored, multifaceted grace. Now, number three. Paul was made a minister to warn and teach every man. To warn and teach every man. Verse 28, whom we preach, that's Christ, in you, the hope of glory. He's preaching Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom so that, here's the aim, Paul says, I might present, we might present every man perfect or mature in Christ. So Paul's ministry is one of warning, which means to gently reprove, to rebuke, or to caution, which always implies there's some danger involved. We'll look at that later. There's a danger for which Paul is going to warn every man as it relates to Christ 
And then he's going to teach every man as it relates to Christ. That's who he's preaching. Teaching is just to impart instruction, to teach. He's teaching the mystery, the Word of God about Christ. And then that is in all wisdom, Paul would say. That then is going to be the, the remedy and the solution for Paul, what he says following, to present every man mature in Christ. Now, Paul's ministry, he would say in other places, is one of warning and teaching. You remember in Acts chapter 20, when he met with the elders and bishops at Ephesus, he met them in Miletus, he would tell them that by the space of three years they need to remember. He warned them day and night with tears concerning the false prophets and teachers that would enter in among them and that would rise up from among them and speak perverted things to draw away disciples after them. That's a danger for us today. And Paul's ministry was warning and teaching as it related to that. In 1 Corinthians 4.14, when he rebuked the church, he said to them, I do not say these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Like a father warns his son, and Corinthian church was much like we are as sons and daughters, used to be, and maybe you are as children today. When your parents try to warn you, you just kind of slough it off. You just kind of act like they're ridiculous sometimes. Did you ever do that when you were young? Beloved, God does not waste His breath. He doesn't. When He gives a warning, it is real. You don't need to think of God's warnings as ridiculous. He's just always telling me, be careful here, be careful here. Sometimes as parents, we can go over the board and over the top with warnings. But Paul said, as my beloved sons, I warn you. And then in uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul would speak of Timothy's ministry and ministry today in the context of both warning and teaching. He would say, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and teaching or doctrine. So you got teaching and you got three words that express encouragement, strength, and warning, rebuking and correcting. Why should you do that, Timothy? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will keep to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they'll turn away their ears from the truth and be turned into fables. Now what that means then is that when preaching is done like Paul's, that's warning and teaching, you will endure sound doctrine. And you won't be drawn away with fables because you have itching ears because the preaching of the truth will do something that will prevent itching ears. So Paul's ministry was one of warning and teaching for that aim. And we'll connect the reason in the last passage, or last part of the passage, soon, Lord willing, before we quit. But what I want to focus on now is the phrase, in all wisdom, because that's where he's going. So the preaching of Christ... Warning and teaching every man as it relates to Christ in you is in all wisdom. Wisdom. So there are two ways I want to look at how Paul was preaching Christ in such a way in all wisdom. First, as the source of all wisdom. Christ is the source of all wisdom. Colossians 2 and verse 3. In Him is hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, that verse and the two above it in chapter 2, this I say, lest any man beguile you 
with enticing words. Paul, with the word hid in many of the places in Colossians, is striking a blow at the Colossian heresy through the false teachers. It was a combination of Gnosticism, which is the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, and a combination of Jewish legalism, legalism, rules, and Jewish asceticism, extreme self-denial, which Paul says is nothing more than a show of wisdom, catch the word wisdom, in will worship, but not any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. In other words, it doesn't do anything to curb the passions of the flesh, but what it does do is just show wisdom in worshiping your own choice, your own will. And he chooses the word wisdom very specifically there. Gnosticism was a form of knowing where these false teachers said, Christ is is good, but you need so much more, even for salvation. And so they offered a secret knowledge. The word hid, it means secret concealed, or it can mean stored up. So they offered an esoteric kind of knowledge that you can only access by a few elite teachers. And they would write this in their books, but they were secret. You couldn't have access to the books, but you could have access to them, and they would tell you everything you needed to know above and beyond Christ. Notice in our text, Paul uses the word every man three times on purpose. Whom we preach, warning every man, teaching every man to present every man. You know why he says that? Because every believer has access to the truth of the gospel. But the Gnostics would not give you access to their books, which were just a bunch of falsehoods. You had to access them to get what they thought you needed, which is above and beyond Christ. So what does Paul say? In him is hid, not concealed, not secret, but stored up, all the treasures... So we get our English word thesaurus. A collection of precious things or treasures collected in a repository. In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What's Paul saying? You need nothing more than Christ. You need nothing else other than Christ. And because you have union with Christ, you have come into union with all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in Him. Now think of that in the Gnostic error. We're we're missing something. We're we're not complete. You have the, the fullness of deity inside of you. You have Christ and you're united to that fullness and you are perfect, passive, complete. You need no more information than what God has given you. You need no more of a Savior other than Christ. And God gave it to you by divine act of sovereign grace. Paul would make this church, uh, make this point to the church at Corinth concerning wisdom. When he would say in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he would say, But of Him are you in Christ Jesus. Because of God are you in union with Christ. That's what that means. It's because of God alone that you have union of Christ. But of Him are you in Christ Jesus, which of God is made unto us. Four things to counter the love of wisdom and the false teachers the church 
was succumbing to. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Let's take the last three first. Righteousness. Because of your union with Christ, what are you missing with regard to righteousness? Did God impute to you a full and complete righteousness, a whole Christ, or just a partial Christ and a partial righteousness that you've got to do some act, some prayer, some work, some deed to complete the equation? No, because you're in Him. You're united to fullness, so you have full righteousness. Right now as a believer, it's yours positionally in Christ. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How much? All of it. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are attached to complete and full righteousness. Why? You're in Him. Sanctification, which means holiness. You have a full positional holiness. Why? Because you're in Christ. But it goes further. You may say, well, there's a lot lacking in my life. I'm not, I'm not as holy as I should be. I, I need to progress in that. Yes, and where does that come from? Because you're united to Christ. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life, Romans 6. You already have it. You don't have to go searching for it. You don't have to go seeking, how am I going to be more holy? You have it positionally, and now you have it as a branch has it from a vine, John 15. You have everything you need in Christ. Not only in your position, you're fully holy in the eyes of God, but now in any fruit that needs to be worked out. Romans 7 says what? You've been married to another that you may bring forth fruit unto God. It's your union, your joining, your marriage to Christ that produces fruit. You have everything in Christ and redemption. In whom we have redemption. We've seen in Colossians 1.7. Or Colossians 1.14 rather in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Total, complete, full forgiveness. Why? You're in Him. You were put in Christ before the world began. You were in Him on the cross. And therefore, His substitutionary atonement was for you. And now, you're in possession of that union by faith. He's your righteousness, sanctification, redemption. But He's your wisdom, Paul says. How much wisdom? All of it. He's your complete, one source, one stop place of wisdom. In Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you're complete. And you have everything you need in Him. You don't have to go searching for wisdom. You don't have to go seeking knowledge. You don't have to go look into the world to find what you need. You have it in Christ. Now Paul says, I say this, lest any man beguile you with enticing words. Enticing words means plausible words. It means... Specious words, it means misleadingly attractive. 
the Gnostic heresy, the Jewish legalism, and the Jewish asceticism is misleadingly attractive. What's misleading about it? It is suggesting to you that you don't have enough. You're missing something. You know that emptiness inside of you? There's a void that you can't fill. You need something more. And we have the answers. Beloved, the root of all temptation is a misleadingly attractive allurement, isn't it? Not just what Paul is talking about here. In any form and shape, we are are made to believe that if we only had that, or this, or could go there, or live there, or work there, what is missing would be supplied. That's misleading. It's misleadingly attractive. Because the attraction is that there are any number of people saying, I can give you. I know where to find what's missing. If you just follow this, if you just listen to this advertising, you just hear what I'm saying. And that's what the Gnostics were doing. And they were being successful at this church because they weren't throwing out Christ. No false teacher ever does. They'll talk about Christ, and people will say, well, I've heard him preach, he preaches Christ. Well, so what? Is he misleadingly attracting you to something on the other side of Christ? Or, as Paul would say, beware lest anyone beguile you Misreckoning, miscalculation, cause you to make a miscalculation in your math? Just a slight miscalculation? With philosophy, love of wisdom, vain deceit, traditions of men carried over from the Jewish lifestyle of the law that are gone forever, and the rudiments of the world, the ABCs of religion. And that's all the Mosaic Age was, Galatians chapter 4. Quit being adolescents, Paul would say, and grow up into maturity. And not after Christ. Beware lest men who are teaching Christ are leading you to the other side of Christ and they're not leading you to the Christ as full source supply of everything you need, including wisdom. You don't need anything else. And how often do you and I are convinced we do? Through our discontentment, through our movement about, who are being carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, by the cunning craftiness, where they lie in wait to deceive. You know what that is a picture of in Ephesians chapter 4? Immaturity. Children. Instead of fully grown adults. So Paul is going to preach. Now, what is Paul going to do that's going to help the church not to be beguiled, not to make the miscalculation, and not to be drawn away from Christ in a misleadingly attractive way. Well, he just told us, whom we preach, Christ. What is the aim of preaching then? Warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom. 
so that the aim of preaching is to so lift up the supremacy of Christ, as Paul has done in Colossians 1, that you walk away saying, I don't need anything else. I'm satisfied with the Messiah that's mine. I'm united to Christ. That's the aim of preaching in whatever we preach, is to be so completely drawn away with Christ that when you look at the treasure that's in front of you, that's in your possession, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the riches of the glory of the mystery, and you look at it and you know it's yours, it's going to be very hard for someone to lead you away with a poor man's coffer. Is it not? So Paul's preaching Christ, warning and teaching in all wisdom, so that rather than being drawn away, what's going to happen? He's going to present the bride to Christ in the future. So Christ is the source of wisdom, and Paul is going to remind the church at Colossae this in a powerful way in chapter 1, but all throughout, even when he gets to wives and husbands, etc., relationships, he's still connecting with the supremacy of Christ. You don't need any other thing for your marriage or your family. Secondly now, in all wisdom, I think he's speaking of the use of wisdom. Because if he's preaching Christ in this way, then we're we're receiving Christ, Colossians 2 verse 6, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in the fullness of that wisdom. I think now he's going to talk about how we would use that wisdom. So I want to look at this and connect it in his prayer in verse 9. Remember, he's choosing words very specifically to address the Gnostic and the Jewish errors. So it would say in verse 9, just kind of beginning, in the beginning part of his letter, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom. That's an exact statement in verse 28. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now the word spiritual modifies both wisdom and understanding. It's spiritual wisdom and it's spiritual understanding. So what Paul is saying is it comes from the Spirit. He's not talking about some mystical experience where we feel spiritual. It comes from the Spirit. Since he heard of their love in the Spirit, he's praying for Spirit-filled wisdom and Spirit-filled understanding. Paul wants them to be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's will, and to increase in the knowledge of God, which is essentially the same thing, isn't it? Right? If you know God's preferences, what he wants, what he wills, what he loves, and you know what he doesn't want, what he doesn't prefer, what he hates, you know God. Just like men, when your wife tells you after many, many years of marriage, when you blunder the birthday gift and she says how do you not know what I prefer how is it that you don't know that I would not like that what she's saying you don't know me ouch so to be filled with the knowledge of his will is to increase in the knowledge of God these two are essentially the same because to know his will is to know something about God's nature because his will comes out of his nature just like your will comes out of your nature, whether depraved or born again. Your will doesn't force the nature, it's the other way around. 
This word knowledge is a word we've seen before, which is epignosis. Gnosis, knowledge, which the Gnostics were using, epi, which intensifies the meaning. We've noted before, it's a deeper, fuller experience of God's will and of knowing God. Now, the word gnosis is not a bad word in the Bible. It's just this word goes deeper. It's more experiential. It's like the, the first time I discovered years ago, I don't remember when it was. I may have been reading a children's book to one of my nieces or nephew. It was before marriage. And uh, to that time, you read a, ch- a child's book and you open it up. It's just one dimension. You see the castle and the princes and the princesses. And, and you read the book. But one day, I got one of those pop-up books. And you open it up and the castle comes off the page. They engineered the paper in such a way that when you turn it, it just kind of goes together. You ever seen that book? I had to turn every page looking at it. I just forgot the words. There is an experience with the castle and the princess and the princesses that come off the page that's deeper than a flatline one dimension. Paul is after a 3D experience with God. One that we experience more than just words on a paper, but where God comes out and up and through in a way that we see and know, experience Him. Now, the problem is, uh, as Christians, often we reduce the wisdom that we get from God and His Word to differences between right and wrong and good and bad. And that often leaves the heart unaffected, right? That's kind of a one-dimensional knowing God's will, right? So the way that works out is you, you want to make a move of some kind. You want to make a decision, and it may be rather large. You want to know what to do, so you want to know God's will. And the first question you ask is kind of one-dimensional flatline. You say, well, is there a prohibition concerning it? Translated, is there anything wrong with it? Now, that's a good question to ask, but if that's the only question you ask, where's your heart in that question, right? What's wrong with it? Every Fight of Faith conference, not only two years in a row here, but the one I went to in uh, Mississippi in December, we always get a question. We've answered it. I tried to answer it in Mississippi. Is it wrong to get a tattoo? Is it wrong to get a tattoo? That's a good question. But the motive for that question could be one of two things, possibly. One is, if it's not, I'm getting one, right? Isn't that how we approach the will of God? If there's no prohibition, I'm going. I'm going for it. The other may be, if it is wrong, I'm going to tell all my friends and just condemn them for getting a tattoo, right? See, where's the heart in that equation? See, what we should be asking on this one-dimensional, not only is it wrong, what's righteous about it? You ever ask that question? You're going to make a move? You're going to make a decision? What's right about it? Well, that's a different question. That'll make you squirm a little bit. Now, supposing concerning the will of God, there was no prohibition, but there was no command to do it. Now we're in the category of wisdom. Wisdom. Doesn't say I can't do it. Hey, it doesn't say to do it. Now we're in the category, not of right and wrong, but what? Good, better, maximum, or primary, secondary. 
And the Bible is filled with this kind of category of wisdom. That's why Paul is praying. That's why James 1.4 says what? If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. They give it to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. But let him ask in faith. Because when God grants it, he expects us to follow the principles. And if it's not a one-dimensional yes or no, then to use the wisdom of the word to get to the place where we're making decisions that do what? Walk worthy of the Lord and that please God. And if my motive is just to say, hey, if I can do it, I'm going to do it. Am I really pleasing God? That's a question we need to ask. So how do we get to this knowledge of the will of God that may be in this category where it's not specifically laid out? Paul says, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, what that means, by it. In other words, you don't know the will of God that leads to wisdom and understanding. You first know spiritual understanding and wisdom, and it leads you to the will of God. Now, Paul says he's preaching in all wisdom. So the source of wisdom comes, we use the wisdom, and now what do we do? We need spiritual understanding. What is that? Understanding here is when you perceive something. You have insight into something. You can penetrate through the smoke and see something. What do we see? Well, this word is often used to express seeing and knowing the value and the worth of the reality of God. And that's where all wisdom starts. Without that, you're just going to ask that flatline 1D question. What's wrong with it? Because you're not seeing. The value of God. Romans 3.11. Paul would say concerning the depravity of man and our inability to love God. He says it this way. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. Implied what? God. We don't understand Him in some way. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. Why not? Because they don't understand. Something about God. Now Romans 1 says we clearly do understand something. For that which may be known of God has been manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. That's you. Even His eternal power in God, so that you and I have no excuse. In one context, Paul says, you know and you understand something about God. In another context, he says, no one understands. You go back to Romans 1. When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Why? None of us understand His value and His worth and His supremacy. So we make the great exchange. We take valuable, one-of-a-kind God, eternal, supreme, impeccable, and glorious, even seeing Him in a, a created power way. And we say, give me the trinket, you can have the gold. I want none of it. That leaves us without excuse. But what happens when the Spirit gives us understanding? The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know the value, the worth, the supremacy, the glory of God. 
Now you have spiritual understanding. That understanding is necessary to know the will of God in an epignosis way. Without it, you just tell me right and wrong. Without it, the Word of God is like a law outside of you that's just coming at you telling you, do this, do that, and you say, okay, which can I do? Rather than something inside of you that's moving you through understanding of the supremacy of Christ, His glory, His value, His worth, His love, and what we learn about Him as Paul preaches Him through his pen, as we keep learning and understanding and seeing value, what happens? We, we gain wisdom. Proverbs 2 tells us, if you seek her as silver and search for her as buried treasure, then shall you understand what? The fear of the Lord and you'll find the knowledge of God. When? When wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, all three in Proverbs 2, are like silver and a buried treasure. And that simply means what? Great value. You know why it has great value? Because men will spend loads of money to dive deep into the ocean to dig up the treasure because we want the value of the treasure. When the fear of God is like that, then you have spiritual understanding and you find the knowledge of God in a way that's more than one-dimensional. Strong? Okay, that's right. Okay, that's all I need to do. I'll just do it. No, when knowledge, Solomon says, is pleasant to your soul, now you have spiritual understanding. That is necessary to know God's will in a way that's going to work itself out in daily life. So from spiritual wisdom and understanding God in that way, which is long-term pursuit, it just, we keep... We keep seeing and keep knowing that way. Then it leads to spiritual wisdom. Wisdom then is when our, our experience, our preferences, our choices begin to line up with our understanding. Right? Understanding God is so valuable, His worth, His glory. Now the choices and the preferences begin to line up with that understanding. Without an understanding, guess what? All your choices are designed for one thing, to maximize you. Now, who doesn't still struggle with that, right? How many choices do we make in a week that had nothing else in mind except what I want? I mean, we even know how to put a veer of Christianity over it, right? When all the while, it's just, just what I want. It has nothing to do with God's will. That's our struggle. And that's one reason the Colossi church was what? Being drawn after misleadingly attractive things. They needed to move forward in knowing God through spiritual understanding and spiritual wisdom. So this, this wisdom then is going to be a result. Now think of this in terms of Ephesians chapter 5 and about the 16th verse where Paul says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but wise. As wise. Circumspect is a, is a wisdom term. To see all around carefully, diligently, discreetly, discretion, with prudence. All right? Wise men and women walk circumspectly, and this is what they do redeeming the time because the days are evil. Fools do not redeem time in the way that Paul is talking about. 
Then Paul makes another statement, which is synonymous. It's parallel. It's repeating the same thing in a different way. He says, Wherefore, be not unwise, which is the negative way of saying what? Be wise. Don't be fools. Understanding the will of the Lord. He didn't say know it. Spiritual understanding. How do we know it's spiritual? Next verse. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, which gives spiritual understanding, which produces wisdom that leads you to redeem the time. Redeem the time. Now, that's not a right or wrong. That's not a good or bad, is it? You can say, I wasted time, but there's not commands all over the Bible that tell you exactly what to do with your time in a day. But we know we want to do the will of God with our time. So the word redeem is ex agorazo. Ex out of agorazo marketplace. Now, agorazo would just mean you're at Bridge Street. You're, you're there. Ex agorazo means you make a purchase and you leave with it to possess it for your own use. Maybe I should pick a different store. I don't know, a different place. But the marketplace, the Greek marketplace was the Agora. You go in there, there's all kinds of things. So you're in this marketplace, and so you're there, and you want to maximize what? The bang for your buck. That's going to require some understanding on your part, just in a natural way, right? You go to the appliances, you go to the, the clothing section, you go to electronics, you go to the flooring, you go to remodeling, whatever you go to. In this, in this marketplace, you're going to need some understanding because what you want to do is use your money in a way that's worth it. So when you pass by an object, you ultimately say, what? It's not worth it. Price is too high or the price is so low. I know that's cheap. And you keep searching. How does Paul mean for us to apply this spiritually? See, in in the agora of your life, you have this time. And with this time... You need understanding to use that time in a wise way, not to maximize your own budget. I get that. Do that. But to maximize the will of God for advancing God's kingdom in all the ways the Bible says to do that. Because we want to hallow God's name. We want His kingdom to come and we want to do His will. That requires a spiritual understanding to see and penetrate the value of God in life so that it leads to our preferences, our decisions of movement and activity and and work in such a way that we're maximizing His kingdom and not doing our own will. And that requires the Spirit. Who hasn't faltered at that? So redeeming the time like Paul did, right? So we start looking for, oh, this is pretty good, but what is the best here? Now, when Paul was in prison, it, was, it would have been good if he spent all of his time hiring lawyers and getting out of prison. Who would say, Paul, you, 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 you bad man. Don't you know that's wrong to try to get out of prison when you're, you're there and you're not even there for the right reason? You, you did nothing wrong? Stop that. Just stay there. We would have helped him do it. But Philippians 1, Paul said, I would you understand. I want you to understand. That his bonds was for the furtherance of the gospel. 
The things that happened to me, and if you just chronicle the things that happened to Paul, from the day he, he arrived in Jerusalem in Acts 21 till the day he's in Rome, that's a lot of things. Just track them down. He said, all that happened to advance God's kingdom. How? Because Paul had spiritual understanding that led him to preferences and wisdom and choices that doing the will of God was advancing God's cause, even when there was no precise commandment that he act or refrain from doing so. Beloved, in our life, there's so much time we can use for strictly for self, or we can use in the service of others and the advancement of God's kingdom. And time that God gives us freedom to use. But we don't want just good, even better. We want to maximize God's glory with our life. And in so maximizing, what are we maximizing? Our fulfillment in God. You never have to choose between the two. God says, love me. Well, I guess that means I have to give up on things because I know He wants me to love other people. So love other people means I've just got to go out to everybody. No, the command to love God supremely is the command to keep loving your neighbor because the one always feeds to the other. So this spiritual wisdom that leads, or understanding that leads us to a spiritual wisdom in areas where it's not always a wrong, right, bad, good, but discernment, understanding, uh, insight, then leads us to doing the will of God daily in ways in the areas where God didn't specifically say, hey, don't do that. But do this. And how much of your life is filled with that kind of decision? So Paul, in preaching Christ, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, is doing so by giving the source of that wisdom and then telling them how to use that wisdom. How? In marriage, in family. A lot of information about how to do your marriage. A lot of information about how to do your children, how to train your children. It's misleadingly attractive, is it not? A lot of different ways people are doing work in the workplace. Servants to masters. A lot of different ways masters are ruling over their employees. Paul addresses that in this letter. He's bringing the wisdom of the supremacy of Christ, spiritual understanding, into a wisdom working itself out in our choices and preferences in a way that we're doing the will of God in every context of our relationships. For which I say, oh, how we need the Spirit. I need Him desperately if I'm to make way in this kind of growth. And, and what's going to happen then, according to this text, we will not be beguiled by specious wisdom, false wisdom, and things that are tracked, but they're miscalculating. They cause us to miscalculate. Oh, it'd be better. I need this. i got to go there. I've got to search for that. You do not need anything but Christ. And that may work itself out in many different contexts and where you are and what you do. But the starting point is, I have everything in Christ. Right now, Paul... 
will tell why. He does this in all wisdom. So that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Now we've already learned that Jesus is going to do this. In verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death, that is, you've been reconciled this way. Verse 22, chapter 1. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Christ is going to present his bride to himself. But Paul says, I'm going to present the bride. To present you. We, he said, the ministry may present every man perfect in Christ, mature. These are not two different presentations. How is Paul seeing his ministry being used by God in this divine presentation? Have you ever heard of a bride missing her wedding? Frankly, it was probably the groom and not the bride. Never heard of a bride missing her wedding. I think I've heard of a man who was very late or maybe missed it or maybe showed up at the wrong place, but not a bride. Paul is instrumental in making sure you as the bride don't miss your wedding day. Now, how do we know that contextually? Who's going to be presented according to Paul? I'm just going to read it. Verse 23. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, and miss your wedding day. See, I didn't know the church could miss her wedding day. She cannot if she continues. Because Jesus, the perfect groom and husband, is going to keep the bride. And how is He going to keep her from being moved totally and finally? Through the proclamation of the word of Paul that you have in your lap or on your phone. That's how He does it. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealous jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. When? In the final day. We are in the engagement period as the church. The wedding day is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church, the bride, will make the wedding day as she continues trusting in the groom. Because God's grace keeps us trusting. So beloved, you won't miss your wedding day, so don't miss it. Don't be beguiled. Don't be led captive from a false husband and a groom that cannot do what Jesus does. And stay under the sound of God's Word through preaching and reading and meditating and believe what the Bible says concerning it. And in that way, God is keeping you through Paul's preaching which he penned in the New Testament. So he's not here to keep us. His Word is. Now, let me finish with your role. thought I was going to forget that. I almost did. How is this me being made a minister or in ministry? Paul uses the same Greek three words in Colossians 3.16 concerning you. Put your eyes on Colossians 3.16, so I'll I'll know you you believe me on this because you're going to look at it. Verse 15, 
And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which you are called in one body. Be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and warning, admonishing. Same Greek, three words. Now it's the church that's teaching, warning, in all wisdom. Why? For the same end. The same end. That's astounding, isn't it? Now, beloved, I need to make a plug here. Don't don't take this the wrong way. This is why I think fellowship groups are so vital to the life of this church. Vital. Because that's where some of that's happening. Right? We need to minister to one another informal where you don't schedule it and God just brings us to one another. And we need to do it formally where it's scheduled. I encourage you. Not a demand. I don't have a right to do that. I strongly urge you to be part of a fellowship group. This is where this is to be taking place, the nuts and bolts. This is where we learn from one another and we see one another and we warn and teach and help one another and we're gaining wisdom. So Paul says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, the which also you are called in one body. So we need peace in the body. We need to pursue peace. The peace ruling in your heart, the word rule means to be like an umpire. You know, it says strike or... Ball or out or safe. How does that work? Well, sometimes we want to we make that work like this. I don't feel peace in my heart. Let me translate that, what that means for me. It means I'm not doing this. <laughs> I don't want to do it. I don't want to warn. I don't want to do this teaching thing. I'm, I don't feel good about it. I don't feel peace about it. This peace is not subjective. It's objective. Imagine for a moment that your peace with God was only subjective. So when you don't feel peace... It's gone. I mean, eternally, you don't have it. That'd be troublesome. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. You need to believe it because it's a reality. You have peace. Your subjective feelings can go in and out, in and out, but it's settled in heaven. Justification by faith means peace, and it's not wavering. What does he mean? As an umpire, let peace rule by making the decision to pursue peace. I have never had to pursue peace with a person that really felt good about it in my soul. Never felt good. I felt anxious. I felt troubled. I felt like I don't want to do this. So let peace be the umpire and says, God says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. I want to be a peacemaker. Let peace rule. I'm pursuing peace in the body. One body, local church. You're called to this peace in one body, and you're called to be thankful for every person in it. Somebody may think one time, well, I don't even like the people in my church. Just for the record, I don't think that. Don't put that. I'm just giving illustrations. I don't even like the people. You know how self-centered that is? What you're saying, they don't meet my needs. They're not the kind of people I like. They don't do anything for me. Are you thankful for every single person here? even a person like me, that can say and rub you in the wrong way. Be thankful for the body that God has assembled for you. And you'll be satisfied with that body, no matter what the conflict, what the problem, what the trouble. And you'll stick around in the conflict. Because all of us want to do what in conflict? I just want to escape. Let it rule. Let it be the umpire. I'm deciding for peace. I'm pursuing peace even though I don't really feel good about what I'm going to have to do. 
Peace is ruling. Secondly, peace is ruling because you know God is ruling in the body. So there's no mistakes in the body. There's nobody here that shouldn't be here in the sense of God's sovereignty. So He brings this body together. He brings about by His sovereignty all the experiences we have that bring tension and conflict in our relationships and marriage everywhere. So when I'm bringing peace to verse 16, I'm letting peace rule and understanding God's rule, so I'm ready now to be helpful and minister grace, ready, rather not, uh, ready to do that rather than bring my frustration and my anger that you would mess up my day like that or, or whatever we may get frustrated about. See, It's not understanding the rule of God over your life in the body that He is engineering all things so that we can grow in every conflict and everything that we know about each other. We can grow now by doing what? Ministering one to another. I may need to be warned and cautioned. You saw that. You heard me say that. You tuck it away until I can have a conversation with Brother Mike. Or you fr- I'm just frustrated when he says that. I don't know why he says stuff like that. I'm just so frustrated. Pursue peace. And we teach, we impart wisdom, we impart knowledge. And so now, amazingly, the ministry of Paul, he was made a minister to preach, to warn and teach every man in all wisdom. And now you were made a minister, or ministry, I should say, Not to preach in an official capacity, but to teach and to warn in all wisdom because the body is building itself up in love and the body is helping one another what? Not to be moved away from the gospel and miss your wedding day. See, that's confusing when you say it like that because you make it sound like a true believer can miss his wedding day. No. No, he or she cannot. Think of it this way. Why does a bride miss her wedding day? And she could have gotten the wrong address if that ever happened. What's the other reason? I don't like the man. I was mistaken. I don't love him at all. I don't want to live my life with him. So she moves away from her groom and she lives her life with no love. For the groom. Now, at one time, she espoused the love, right? She confessed the love. She made a public profession. I love him, but I realized I really don't. So all the people that are in this category of not loving God, God in the final day, that they have not loved God, even if they've made a profession and departed from it, and moved away from the hope of the gospel, totally and finally, God has promised to do something to them. What? He's going to destroy them. Beloved, if that's me, If that is me, I can rest assured God will keep His promise. Now what are you trying to do, Brother Mike? Warn you. I am given authority from heaven to warn you and I'm doing so. And in that warning, I'm taking it myself. The warnings of God. He is not wasting His breath. So, Fall in love with Jesus. See Him as the best husband you could ever have. And just hang on to Jesus. And you'll find out what? He's hanging on to His bride. He will not lose one of His bride. He will keep her. He will preserve her. He came from heaven to purchase her. He did so with His blood. And you will not miss your wedding day if 
you continue. That if is based on God's grace, and He's going to supply it. And that if is is based on you relying on that grace, which when the two come together, we have the perseverance of the uh, preserving grace of God. They just fit nicely together. Right? So let us be involved in ministry. Ministry that God brings us to it, brings it to us as parents at home. He brings you ministry every day. Every day. Your children show a side of themselves that need some correction, some instruction, some warning. Embrace that. Be at peace. Right? In your marriage, God brings to my wife ministry every single day. Every day. She lovingly helps me. Right? That's what happens in marriage. If you don't have a marriage like that, then you, I need to talk to you and see what your secret is. You, you are perfect. No, you don't have one like that. You need this ministry. And we minister in the body to one another. Right? How are we going to do that, church? How are we going to exhort one another, one another, one another daily? It, it, it's going to take some deliberate effort. Or you know what? I'll, I'll see you all next Sunday. That's my default mode. That's your default mode. So we can minister when opportunities come and minister when we schedule opportunities. Right? And let us press on in the pathway of Paul. Warning every man, teaching every man, as Paul said, that we may present every man perfect, mature in Christ Jesus. We're already mature because we're united to Him. We're growing into what we are, waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a day that's going to be. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We thank You, Lord, for Your amazing grace. We thank You, Lord, that we can lay our heads on a soft pillow at night to know that You're going to keep us. You're going to keep us. You're going to keep us in the grip of grace. So our assurance of that grip is that we remain in the grip of grace and that we continue with all of our weakness and frailty, with all the sins that easily beset us, we continue. We love you, Lord, and we know that you'll keep us loving. So help us to heed the warnings and the instruction of Scripture concerning the supremacy of Christ and keep us, Lord, from being misled mistakenly, attractively, because that's what allurement is, into thinking. There really is a better husband. There really is a better groom out there. There really is a replacement Messiah, for there is not. And may we cling to Christ and know with spiritual understanding and wisdom and be filled with the knowledge of His will on a more consistent basis and to know You in Your great love, Your great mercy, for which we're thankful. And thank You for this body, Lord. Thank You for every person in it. Thank you. May that fill our hearts with gratitude every day. Thank you for the ones that are not here. Thank you for the ones that are here. Thank you for the ones that you'll add in the future, Lord. Thank you for the ones that have gone to be somewhere else. I pray for them, Lord. And thank you that you're keeping them. And Lord, may you have all the glory and praise and honor. Be our help. Be our strength. Be our wisdom. And we pray that we would move more and more into this pathway of serving one another as I've seen here countless times before. But may we do as Paul. May we increase and abound more and more. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.